Previously on One Great History, Sabrina took Alex and Nick through the wonderful world of Vaudeville Theatres in Winnipeg with the help of performer Grant Simpson. Vaudeville held a major place in Winnipeg's heart at the turn of the 20th century as one of North America's most popular forms of theatre. And with a handful of theatres and hundreds of exciting acts, including Harry Houdini, Charlie Chaplin, and more, we dive back into the world of Vaudeville on this week's episode of one Great History, Famous Players, Vaudeville History in Winnipeg. And I think now it's probably time we talk about some local stars. Right. Winnipeg didn't have a whole lot of them, which may not be surprising. There weren't many that made it big. <laughs> you have some like Howie Sims who are kind of locally well-known in a very specific circle. Mm-hmm. But there were chances for people to make it big, because Grant told me about the old vaudeville tryouts you could do. Every Thursday was, uh, in, in most towns, every Thursday morning you could go and try out. Oh, interesting. That's where the, That's the hook and everything comes from. Okay. And, and they would, you know, they'd sell tickets to those shows and people would go in to be mean. It's like you go to, <laughs> you go to. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, they take in food and vegetables and things to throw at them, and and if they were bad, you know, and and they'd really heckle them, and it was like, okay, well, if you can make it through this, maybe you have a chance. (laughs) So you could go try out, but at the uh, risk of being heckled quite severely. Okay, so my idea of like throwing tomatoes at the performers basically is more like in the tryout phase. Yeah, yeah. If you want to be mean, you'd go during the tryout phase. Right. But there is actually one Winnipeg vaudeville troupe that does kind of make it big. And they're called the Winnipeg Kitties. Oh. Are they, like, women, I'm guessing? No, they're children. Oh. Oh, kitties. I was... No, yeah, K-I-D-D-I-E-S, not with T's. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was a vaudeville troupe founded in 1915 to entertain troops that were coming through Winnipeg. And then um, they were mostly made up of local Winnipeg kids. Among them are like Marjorie Guthrie, Lillian Beck, uh, Grace Gilmer, Thelma Wolpa, Freddie and Gordon Holmes, and Jackie Feinsilver. All of them had some experience performing in Winnipeg before this. And in their early years, they were called the Winnipeg Juvenile Performers, which is not as catchy and harder to find. So they actually started uh, working as sort of a fundraising group to raise money for the Returned Veterans Association, not long after they were founded. So within a year, they started going on tour around sort of the Canadian West, and they went to Minnesota and Ontario and smaller towns along the way. Um, at a minimum, they could raise somewhere between 400 to $600 in smaller sized towns. But uh, their biggest tour happened in 1917 when they did a six-week trip across Western Canada and through American border towns. And this caused a stir because the Great War Veterans Association said, why aren't these kids in school? <laughs> yep, fair question. And then uh, the troop said that teachers were traveling with them and that the Great War Association was not the guardian of these children. (laughs) Wow. The show was very much a variety act, but just with kids doing whatever they wanted. So the stage manager of the show was Mrs. Holmes, who I can't find anything on. But the headliner of the act was Marjorie Guthrie, who was an elocutionist and singer, so she would do monologues and songs. And some of her songs in this one undated program I found include Old England Needs You Like a Mother. Would you turn your mother down? (laughs) That's a very long song title. Isn't it? And then There's Someone More Lonely Than You. Oh, okay. I guess. 
There were more songs than that, but they were the funniest names. <laughs> <laughs> then you have uh, the Holmes Twins, which is uh, Freddie and Gordon. They were drummers and singers. And their songs include Everybody Took a Kick at Nicholas. Hey. <laughs> Save your kisses till the boys come home. <laughs> Do you think that's like an anti-lesbian song? Like, don't kiss the girls. You gotta wait. You gotta wait till the boys come home. It's, I, that idea of wasting kisses comes yeah. back. Yeah. Spend your kisses wisely. <laughs> and then you have uh, Jackie Finesilver, who was a comedian and a monologuist. And some of his songs include, You Can Never Be Too Sure About the Girls. And, <laughs> Daddy, I Want to Fight. <laughs> I think I should add in now, this was sung during wartime, so these are all patriotic war songs. Right. Which is why there's some stuff about, like, saving your kisses till the boys come home. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Doris, Ro- Doris Roche sang as the uh, Red Cross girl, so she was just dressed like a nurse. The program doesn't give her any songs that were interesting. Um, Lillian Beck was a character singer and sang songs like, I've got a pain in my sawdust. What? I don't know. And then, since mother goes to the movies. Huh. Okay. So that's a big hit. Yeah, yeah, we Elizabeth... all know that one. <laughs> Mother goes to the movie shows. We all know that experience. <laughs> um, Elizabeth Swanson was the North Dakota fairy doll who did dancing and singing, and one song was called Roll Me Around Like a Hoop. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Walter Hall and then Lillian Beck and Jackie Finesilver all did like duets and dances that weren't super notable. But that's sort of what a show would look like. Okay. It's just a bunch of kids doing fun little skits about kissing and war. <laughs> I don't think adults want to watch kids perform anymore not the way they used to like that seems to have been more of a thing back in the day like i've got like a nat king cole album and there's like a couple of episodes or a couple of songs where he's like singing duets with like his kid or whatever i don't want to listen to that (laughs) (laughs) that's fair so the group kept touring from 1917 until 1918 they performed at the burt a couple of times which is at the time the walker theater uh, their 1921 show was probably the biggest because the costumes cost $2,000 alone. And then by uh, sort of the early 1920s, the group had disbanded. The name was revived a few times for sort of like either reunion shows or like new groups. And then the other, the kids from the original group went on to do other things. Doris Roche married Sammy Cohen, who was a Jewish actor who had a role in All Quiet on the Western Front. And then she became a blues singer. Uh, Rita Laverne, who was in the troupe a little later, went into CBC radio plays Others went into, like, business and manufacturing and less exciting careers, but two actually went on to achieve fairly significant fame, namely uh, Thelma Wolpa and Marjorie Guthrie. So Wolpa was actually from the States. She was from, I believe, North Dakota and got roped into the troupe when they were touring. But they formed an act called the White Sisters. They were not sisters. You're right. (laughs) It was easier to bill them as such. And... For a while, they did sort of children's acts still because Marjorie was, I think, the tallest of the two at 4'10". Oh. So they could still pass as kids if they wanted to. But then they get a role in the Zigfield Follies. And then their careers start to take off. So Marjorie Guthrie has a big film career where she uh, works with the Three Stooges. She does a couple of big movies. And she's on her way to becoming a major star when she dies in a car crash in 1935. Oh, man. So some of Marjorie Guthrie's movies... Include uh, Women Haters, which was a Three Stooges movie. Oh, fun. And then uh, Her Bodyguard, Diplomaniacs. None of these are all that popular. She was in a Charlie Chan movie. If you're a fan of, like, old mysteries, Charlie Chan was a, like, 
Asian detective series that had its problems, but was pretty popular throughout the 1920s and 30s. And also got a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Charlie Chan and the Chan Clan, I believe. Oh, oh interesting. Huh. Yeah, it was like him and his kids. Huh. That's interesting. So yeah, Marjorie Guthrie was in an early Charlie Chan movie. She was billed as Marjorie White, so if you're Googling Marjorie Guthrie, you're going to get a different person, just as a heads up. But uh, Thelma White went on to do something a little different. She did a few movies. She was in um, Reefer Madness. Oh, oh cool. I've seen, have you guys last, seen Reefer Madness? I think a while ago, yeah. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. It was like a marijuana panic film from the 30s, is it not? Yeah. <laughs> they did a remake with uh, Kristen Bell. Like, right. right oh, yeah. Famous. So after being in movies for a while, though, Thelma White moves on to do more bands and instrumental stuff. And she forms an all-female brass orchestra. That performs at the 30s and the 40s. And there is footage of Thelma White and her orchestra on YouTube doing fun songs. And she's actually one of the last surviving cast members of Reefer Madness. I believe she's passed away by now, but she was one of the oldest. There are other, like, lesser-known Winnipeg performers. There's one guy called Alexander Piffmeister, who was the Scotch comedian, but none are all that, like, noteworthy or easy to find stuff on. (laughs) But I think where Winnipeg really shines is the performers that came through town over the years. I, today there's sort of this idea that like people don't come to Winnipeg. We're a flyover province. All the big acts go to like Toronto or Vancouver and we're left with whatever is willing to come here. Which was not always the case. And a lot of touring companies brought big shows in, through Winnipeg, many of whom actually got a pretty early start here. So I've rounded up some of my personal favorites. This is not a comprehensive list. I think that would take weeks and be exhausting to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, uh, the first notable performers are Fred and Adele Astaire. Oh! Cool. So, the more well-known name here is Fred Astaire, obviously. But, more famously, he's known for dancing with Ginger Rogers in a lot of sort of golden age Hollywood musicals. But before he was partnered up with Ginger Rogers, he danced with his older sister, Adele. Huh. They were a children's act who were both talented dancers by, like, five or six years old, and the family actually moved from Omaha to New York to make it big. And one of their first routines, which came out in about 1905, involved the kids dancing up and down uh, set pieces shaped like wedding cakes. <laughs> and the pieces then, like, lit up depending on where you stepped on them. That's, oh, that's not fun. creepy at all. <laughs> so by the time the pair reached Winnipeg, it was 1917, and they were closer to adults than kids. And this is actually one of their last tours they would do before making it big in movies. So... By the end of 1917, Fred and Adele actually gained roles in Broadway shows, and then Fred would use that to launch a movie career in the 1930s. Adele retired by the 1930s. She didn't really go into showbiz the same way her brother did. And uh, my favorite Fred Astaire anecdote, which is probably not true, is that when he screen tested with uh, RKO, someone wrote the note, can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little. (laughs) There's no evidence the note exists, but one note that they did find from uh, David O. Selznick, a studio producer, wrote, I am uncertain about the man, but I feel, in spite of his enormous ears and bad chin line, that his charm is so tremendous it comes through even on this wretched test. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) If someone wrote that about you, would you be complimented or insulted? (laughs) Both. I I think both. It didn't seem to deter Fred Astaire. He worked with RKO. Yeah. (laughs) And then made a bunch of movies. So next up on the list of early celebrities is Stan Laurel um, of Laurel and Hardy fame. But this is before he joined Laurel and Hardy. At the time, it was 
um, with his friend May Dahlberg. So, Stan Laurel was born in 1890. In England, he joined Fred Carnot's vaudeville troupe in 1910 under the name Stan Jefferson. And actually, Charlie Chaplin was in the same troupe as him. And uh, Laurel played at the Pantages Theater in 1921 with his partner, Mae Dahlberg. And then they did some touring for a while in the 1920s before Laurel was offered $75 a week to make two real movie comedies. And then he went into film by 1924. So within three years of playing in Winnipeg, he was now in films. And then in 1926, he befriended Oliver Hardy. And then Laurel and Hardy made a bunch of short films in the 1920s, going into full-length features of the 1940s. And actually, Buster Keaton gave a speech at Stan Laurel's funeral, just for a glimpse of how sort of big these guys were. Yeah. Yeah. They're not as well-known today, I think. They don't have the same, like, lasting impact as some others will. But I think if you say, so like, Laurel is... and Hardy, people have a vague idea that that is famous people. I have my oh. Laurel and Hardy pins right oh, here. Oh, I love that! That's so cute! <laughs> and they're old. They're from, yeah. I don't know when, but... I don't think anyone makes Laurel and Hardy merchandise. No. <laughs> no. There there was a, uh, a Stan and Ollie movie that came out a few years ago with Steve Coogan and John C. Oh, Riley that right. talked about like their last tour, I think. Yeah. So they were kind of washed up and they're like, one more go, Stan. Like, that type <laughs> of thing, but... So the next performer is also someone that might be a little less familiar. Uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson came to Winnipeg in the 1920s. Okay. I don't think I know who that is. Okay. It's interesting, because I feel like of the people we're going to talk about, he might be one of the more influential. So he was he came to Winnipeg a number of times in 1922, 26, and 27. He was described as a dark cloud of joy. And <laughs> he was not a blackface actor. Bilbo Jangles was a real black man. Okay. Which actually seems notable. That does so, seem, yeah, honestly. <laughs> he, uh, he was a tap dancer, predominantly. So there's no review of his act that I could find in Winnipeg, but... He did a sort of tap dancing act that was filmed in 1932 where he tap dances up and down a flight of stairs. And it's probably something similar to that. But when the Orpheum Theater closed in 1946, they highlighted Robinson as one of the big performers that came there at the time. And he had had a pretty long career in vaudeville. He actually got his start in minstrel shows as a pick or a pickaninny. And this is um, one of the black child actors that would sit on the sidelines and do choruses for the white performers. By the 1920s, he's a little older, and he began to sort of do tap more professionally. And then by the 1930s, he'd actually become a massive film star and worked alongside people like Shirley Temple. In fact, the first sort of interracial dance on screen was between Bill Robinson and Shirley Temple. Okay, I think maybe I have seen that, actually. Yeah, it's a fairly, like, well-known film part of film history. Right. So across his career, he did a fairly significant amount of stuff. So he is one of the first minstrel and vaudeville performers to appear as black without the use of blackface makeup. He is one of the earliest black performers to perform solo. He is the earliest black headliner in Broadway shows. The first black performer to appear in a Hollywood film in an interracial dance team. And the first black performer to headline a mixed-race Broadway production. Wow. And then, on top of that, he did activism as well. He was fairly well-known for advocating for the rights of black Americans and black vaudeville performers. So he he persuaded the Dallas Police Department to hire its first black policeman. He lobbied President um, FDR, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, during World War II for more equitable treatment of black soldiers. And he staged the first integrated public event in Miami a fundraiser that was attended by both black and white city residents. And then he was also at one point um, falsely accused of armed robbery because he had, he had a pistol that he hadn't licensed. And I assume that what was going on is he had a pistol to defend himself. 
And then someone was racist about things. I, that seems yeah. to be the case. Because he was never charged with anything. They couldn't prove it. But uh, when he died in 1949, he died penniless. And Ed Sullivan paid for his funeral. Oh, well, that's that's kind of yeah. nice. I mean, not nice that he died penniless, but... Yeah, but, like, Robinson went on to influence stuff like uh, the uh, Nicholas Brothers, who did the dance Stormy Weather with Cab Calloway, uh, Fred Astaire. He was a fairly, like, big influence on later tap dancers in vaudeville. Cool. And he came to Winnipeg three times. And here's another really interesting one. Helen Keller played the vaudeville circuit. Oh. Oh, weird. You and yeah. I were talking about Helen Keller the other day, because apparently we some, were. some young people don't believe that she existed or something there was there was like a tiktok joke that helen keller wasn't real and i think some teens got tricked and some didn't and then people on the internet panicked (laughs) it's very weird so we're gonna state for the record helen keller did exist yeah (laughs) and uh she was a social and political activist who's known for being uh, deaf blind and partially mute notably she was not uh born this way, she um, it was brought on by something like scarlet fever or meningitis when she was around seven. And after the, after the sickness, she couldn't hear and she couldn't see. She learned to speak a little later with the help of Anne Sullivan, who was um, a visually impaired companion that often traveled with Helen Keller and translated and helped her as a friend. But Keller also had some fairly radical social ideas. I don't think we talk about nearly enough. I think she was a socialist, right? She was a member of the Socialist Party of America. Uh, She campaigned for women's suffrage, labor rights, socialism, anti-militarism, and other causes. And sometimes she would do speaking tours. And she played at the Orpheum Theater in 1914. Or she worked at a church in 1914 in Winnipeg and then the Orpheum Theater in 1921. So she came to Winnipeg a few times. And she would talk about what it was like to be a woman who was deaf and blind. And at one point, a Tribune reporter asked her if she ever got tired of talking, and her response was, did you ever hear of a woman who tired of talking? <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is where vaudeville gets kind of interesting as well, because you could do more educational programs. We don't really talk about them as much, because they're not as weird as, like, fake robot men. Right. But someone could show <laughs> new technology or talk about their experiences traveling or anything like that, and that was just as entertaining with some people. Yeah. So we have Helen Keller coming through Winnipeg, and I think now we're going to get into some of the bigger vaudeville stars of the day, and we're going to start with Buster Keaton. I love Buster Keaton. Who is, I know you do. (laughs) Buster Keaton played at the Pantages Theater as part of his family act in 1916 before he'd struck it out solo. Um, He was born Joseph Frank Keaton into a performing family, and they started a vaudeville troupe called the Three Keatons, which was just absurd slapstick. So basically what happened is uh, Buster's mom, Myrna, or Mira, played the saxophone while Joe and Buster did some sort of slapstick act where, like, Buster would disobey his dad and the dad would beat him up and throw him around. (laughs) Well, the mom plays a saxophone in the corner. (laughs) Sounds like a David Lynch movie. (laughs) It's really weird. So because so much of the act involved Buster Keat learning to take falls safely, he actually almost was never injured or bruised on stage. And at some point, they actually sewed a suitcase handle into his clothing to aid with the constant tossing around. (laughs) And he became billed as the little boy who can't be damaged. Oh my god. (laughs) I don't think we could... I don't think that would fly today. (laughs) You don't think you want to go watch a small child be hucked around by a suitcase handle by their dad? I mean, to be honest, I a little bit do. But (laughs) I don't think it would be allowed. Yeah. By the time Buster came to Winnipeg, he was 20, 
and it was 1916, so it wasn't like a dad tossing a toddler around. Right. The Winnipeg Free Press described the act like this. The uh, Three Keaton stage a comedy act that has much slapstick humor. The intensely dramatic plot of one member to annihilate the other is well staged and most nerve-wracking in its suspense. The lady plays acceptably on the saxophone. <laughs> just somehow that makes it so much weirder that she's just sitting there playing the saxophone. The saxophone. <laughs> I feel like it's that I can only imagine it being the song Baker Street on the saxophone is what's really doing it to me. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah. But also... The idea that it's um, someone trying to annihilate another family member as the premise of like a slapstick comedy is really good. <laughs> and then uh, by 1917, Buster Keaton went into films, and you can actually see his silent movies at the Manitoba Museum. You can. And actually, when I worked there, people always like to play the Charlie Chaplin ones because he's a little more well-known. But if I caught it and it wasn't already playing a movie, I'd always try and push a Buster Keaton one so people would have to watch it. Buster Keaton has a really excellent collection of, like, old slapstick comedies, and I would say, like, fairly intense stunt work, too, for movies. Yeah, like, actually incredible athleticism. Was it Keaton the one that had the house fall down, or was that Chaplin? I think that was Buster Keaton, yeah, and, like, the, the kind of myth about that, and I don't know if it's true, but that they, like, nailed his shoes in place. Yeah. Because if he was, like, even a little bit off, it might fall right on him. Yeah. So for those that haven't seen this, there is a Buster Keaton skit on film where he's standing somewhere and the facade of a house falls down and the window goes just over him and avoids crushing him. Yeah. <laughs> and you see this replicated and parodied in like modern movies still. It's a gag that comes up over and over again. And it's Keaton that started it. There's another one where he's just like running down a hill away from a bunch of rocks for an extended period. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it seems like he continued doing the like man who cannot be damaged thing, basically. But his face in all the movies is so sad. He always <laughs> looks so sad when everything is going wrong around him. Uh, our next big star is Eva Tangway, who I assume you have not heard of, but was also pretty big at the time. Uh, Eva Tangway is the girl who made vaudeville famous. Oh, in what sense? Uh, she was born in Montreal and was a like popular sort of brassy singer and dancer, and she became a celebrity just due to, like, the way she sang and her performance style. So she really, like, brought vaudeville, I think, to Canada in a real way. She's a fairly notable performer. But um, some of her song routines are a little suggestive, which might be why she was so popular. Ah. So some of her songs include It's All Been Done Before, But Not The Way I Do It. Oh, okay, I like that. I Want Someone To Go Wild With Me, Go As Far As You Like, and then my favorite one is That's Why They Call Me Tabasco. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I can't find online. I don't know how the song goes, but I tried so hard to find the lyrics to That's Why They Call Me Tabasco. <laughs> but her most famous song was called I Don't Care, and she actually became known as the I Don't Care Girl. She joined the Ziegfeld Follies in 1909 and then continued to tour. At the height of her career, she's one of the highest paid vaudeville stars. So she made uh, about 3500 a week, and that's around $90,000 in 2019 money. Yeah, that's a ton of money. So... 90000 a week. Yeah. I mean, $3,500 a week is still impressive. Yeah. And she was known for doing pretty big stunts. So um, in 1910, the Lincoln Penny was issued, and then not long after, Tangway appeared on stage in a coat covered entirely in the pennies. <laughs> she then married a man 20 years her junior. When she was 49, he was 23. Wow. And it was a publicity stunt, so when it didn't pan out, she just divorced him. <laughs> 
And despite all of this, she only recorded one song and then starred in two films, so her, like, on-screen legacy is not as big as some others. And she'd retired by 1939, or by the 1930s due to cataracts, but she came to Winnipeg in 1900, in 1912, and then in 1921 at different theaters. She's at the Winnipeg Theater, the Empress, and the Pantages across different years. We talked about this guy a little bit in one of her earlier episodes. We talked about Bob Hope coming to Winnipeg. Yeah. Uh, so Bob Hope played at the Orpheum Theater in 1930. At the time, the theater was named the Capitol. And there's this myth that Bob Hope learned to golf in Winnipeg, which is untrue because he was playing here in February. It was far too cold. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Hope was a hugely pro- prolific comedian and golfer who did vaudeville, radio, TV, and film. Uh, I think the thing I know him most for is the Road 2 movies, which he did with Bing Crosby, that are just, like, surrealist pieces of comedy. They're very weird. (laughs) The Road to Bali is on Amazon Prime, and there's a bit in it where they're walking through the forest, and they say, look, could that be? It's Humphrey Bogart. And they cut to a clip of Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen pulling a boat through the bog. (laughs) And they go, Bogey sure got lost. And they try and call him over, and he vanishes. And then they pull up his Oscar to prove he was really there. (laughs) It is very weird. But uh, Hope came back to Winnipeg a few more times after 1930. He played at the Winnipeg Arena, or the Winnipeg Amphitheater, in 1953, and then he came twice in the 1970s. And he has five honorary Academy Awards. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't a good dramatic actor, so I don't think he ever quite qualified for... The real Academy Yeah, Awards. what is an honorary Academy Award even? I mean, I think when you influence a cr- like, like, industry we, we so much... We appreciate you, but not You've that never much. won, but you've done so much. Right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they give them to people who have been nominated many times, or, like, they've just been yeah. robbed, you know? And it's, like, it's crazy that, that like, like Jean-Luc Godard and Francis Ford Coppola got honorary Oscars or Lifetime Achievement Oscars a few years ago. And it's, like, yeah, those are two filmmakers that have had profound effects. And Coppola has an Oscar, but... Or two Oscars, actually. I think he... Yeah, anyways, I could go on a rant about that. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the uh, crazier Winnipeg performances happened in 1921 when Harry Houdini came to Winnipeg. Right. So Houdini came, and he's actually billed alongside comedian Jack Benny, who was also like a slapstick comedian at the time. But for those who don't know, I'm sure there's people who haven't heard of Houdini before, he was an escape artist and magician, and also like a notorious skeptic. Houdini's career is very strange of the things he was interested in doing. So he was initially billed as Harry Handcuff Houdini, where he (laughs) challenged police forces to keep him locked up. And then he would start escaping from like chains, straight jackets under water, ropes from skyscrapers. And then once having to escape and hold his breath inside a sealed milk can with water in it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them are a little strange. A little weird. And then he would try and like escape special handcuffs. He was, the king of escape artists, essentially. And he also became sort of the scourge of fake spiritualists. If you were a psychic and were doing seances, he would try and show up and debunk you. He was also quick to sue anyone who tried to imitate his stunts. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And maybe the craziest part of his trip to Winnipeg is that he didn't just perform at uh, the Orpheum Theater. Uh, He performed for the entire public for free outside in the dead of winter. Yeah, there's a great so, photograph of this that I've seen. Yeah. So he agreed to hang himself upside down in a straight jacket off of the Carlton Street Winnipeg Free Press building about 30 feet in the air. And the Winnipeg Free Press held a photo contest for it. And the first prize netted you $15. <laughs> but the whole thing brought out about 5,000 attendees. And his show in at the Orpheum Theater sounds a little stranger. So... 
the uh, Orpheum, or the review of it from the Winnipeg Tribune describes it as mystifying and bewildering. His performance was keenly interesting, his escape from the Chinese water torture cell being nothing short of amazing. Upon introducing himself and showing motion pictures of a nose-on collision between two airplanes in midair, <laughs> and pictures of his mystifying escape from imprisonments in South or in Hong Kong, he proceeds to get the audience to come and inspect his equipment. It sounds like the start of like a Chris Angel show where you like enter the theater <laughs> and the lights go dark and they start showing plane crashes on screen, <laughs> right? And then you're supposed to, like, yeah. go up and, like, inspect his equipment. To make sure there's no way to escape. There's no- nothing up his sleeve, yeah. And then he did escape, obviously. And the final celebrity story I have is probably the most well-known for, like, Winnipeg celebrity stories. And it's that Charlie Chaplin came to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And this is both, like, it's become sort of an urban legend, but this is one of the ones that's actually true. So Chaplin was a famous sort of vaudeville star. He did slapstick, a lot like Buster Keaton, but Chaplin's slapstick character was the little tramp who had a bowler hat and a mustache, and Keaton tended to look more more morose and sad on stage. Very visually different styles of slapstick comedy. Uh, Chaplin came to Winnipeg five times between 1911 and 1913, where he played at the Empress Theater as a part of the Fred Carnot circuit. This is the one he was touring with um, Stan Laurel with earlier. So Chaplin was British, and he hadn't really been to North America before, so someone did actually play a trick on him in Toronto. (laughs) Um, And he tells this story a little bit later on about how he was in Toronto, and he met this guy from Winnipeg, and the guy from Winnipeg was like, oh, Chaplin, I want you to run up to Winnipeg on Sunday and meet my wife. And Chaplin didn't know how far away it was. (laughs) So he went to the train station... And he went and went up to the ticket booth and wanted a round, tri- a round uh, ticket to Winnipeg. And the clerk handed him about a yard or two of paper and calmly asked for a wad that sounded like a small fortune. <laughs> you've run, you've misunderstood me, Chaplin said, adding, I want to run over to Winnipeg and back. <laughs> How long do you think that will take you, asked the station clerk. About 40 minutes or so, I replied. You'll get there Tuesday night, he said. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> So, after all this, he goes back to the Winnipeg comedian and says, I can't come over. I'm running to San Francisco to spend the evening with my aunt. (laughs) It's a pretty good answer. (laughs) It is. And when he came to Winnipeg, one of his shows was called The Wow Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And this is before he'd sort of developed the character of a tramp, so he was actually sort of like a staggering drunk called the inebriate. Oh. (laughs) And um, the act that he did in Winnipeg involved Chaplin chasing a singer off the stage, groaning at a ham actor, imagines a pretty soubrette singing directly to him, and finally accepts a challenge from Macaroni Alley, the terrible Turk, to wrestle him for a handsome purse. (laughs) And then the drunk wrestles Alley until he falls helplessly to the mat. Oh, jeez. But the most noteworthy of his stints comes in 1913, when he was staying at the Leclerc Hotel. It's now the Windsor Hotel. It's still there. And at the time, he was considering going into movies. And while in Winnipeg, he actually wrote to his brother, Sidney, saying that he was considering signing a contract. And there's still evidence of this being signed. The letter exists, so we know he wrote it. But it was also just on the hotel stationery. It could have been sent somewhere else if Chaplin had stolen from the hotel. (laughs) But not long after that, he signed with Keystone Studios and developed the Tramp persona and then began appearing in films by 1914. 
And then in 1919, he founded United Artists with other artists like Mary Pickford, who was Canadian, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffiths. And the fun thing about the 1913 visit Chaplin had is it coincides with a different uh, vaudeville group passing through Winnipeg. Namely, the Marx Brothers. Oh. The Marx Brothers were actually only in Winnipeg on a layover, essentially. They were heading to Duluth and were stuck in town for about three hours. And Groucho Marx, whose real name was uh, Julius Henry Marx, heard word about Chaplin performing at the Empress and then actually snuck out to go see it. But um, his brothers went to the pool hall and Groucho went on his own, so his brothers were doing their own thing, completely ignoring what he was up to. Um, apparently Groucho's reasoning was, I hadn't been too hot with the cute, and I decided I need a brief sabbatical from the green cloth. <laughs> but he loved what he saw with Chaplin's show, and he ran back to see his brothers and told them about a comic that Penguin walked around the stage, and then he tried to do his own Chaplin impression in the CPR depot. <laughs> and then a few months later, they crossed paths again in Vancouver and actually met up properly, where Chaplin and Groucho introduced themselves. And then Chaplin said he was considering going into films. He hadn't fully decided yet. He wrote the letter, but he wasn't sure. And um, Groucho asked him, why not? Don't you like money? <laughs> um, about a decade later, a little over a decade later, the Marxers enter film on their own and they make other old slapstick movies like Duck Soup. And they did play Winnipeg a number of times at the Orpheum Theater in 1917 and 1922. The Winnipeg Tribune uh, called them unassuming, hardworking boys. <laughs> but there's a lot of, like, influential vaudeville stars that pass through Winnipeg or have these memories of coming to Winnipeg. Because Bob Hope writes about at least talking about golf in Winnipeg, just not golfing here. It's, I think, one of the more interesting parts of our theater history is how big we were, that we attracted all these stars to come through and perform and hang themselves off of buildings in the middle of winter <laughs> as a free publicity stunt. That's bonkers. It is. But by like the 1920s and 30s, you have movies becoming a little longer and a little more popular. And then the final death blow comes in the late 1920s with the introduction of talkies or sound movies. It took a while for them to figure out how to sync up audio and dialogue with movies before you get like little title cards saying what people were saying, if you got any dialogue at all. And then in 1927, the jazz singer premieres, and it's the first feature-length motion picture with synchronized score and also lip-sync singing and speech. And vaudeville kind of holds out a little bit longer through the 1930s, like the Beacon Theater, the Strand stays open for a little bit longer, but most of the vaudeville stars that were big in the early days had moved into either film or radio by this point. There was no longer any money in vaudeville the way there used to be. But vaudeville had a pretty big influence on most of the art that we still enjoy today. Like, you can see vaudeville in... This is an older reference for Alex and I exclusively. The Carol Burnett Show is very much <laughs> vaudeville-inspired. Yeah, totally. The Carol Burnett Show, like that variety-type show thing. Yeah. It's, okay, yeah. Well, Conway you know falling was... slowly down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> my my all-time favorite sketch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, you know what I've, I was also thinking as you were talking is basically vaudeville is like America's Got Talent. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's it's the same thing with, like, a judging element. But even SNL gets its roots from vaudeville. It's just we don't have vaudeville circuits anymore. I guess just the idea that we don't want to watch the same person for too long. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to watch people do, like, weird talents, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, like talents that, you know, w- wouldn't necessarily capture your attention for, you know, a super long period of time. But like, hey, for four minutes, that's a super cool thing to watch or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Someone doing like ventriloquism with a dog or whatever. <laughs> the thing with Winnipeg, though, sadly, is a lot of our like physical vaudeville history is lost because most of the theaters are torn down. Which is, I think, just a result of Winnipeg going a little bit too gung-ho with progress yeah. Yeah. in the 1940s and 50s. Because a lot of the places where those buildings used to be were parking lots for a really long time. <laughs> so we maybe and didn't actually need to knock down those buildings. It was the yeah, preemptive demolition in some cases. <laughs> but it's hard to imagine Winnipeg as sort of a theatrical heyday the way it used to be. Yeah, I think it's a hard thing for Winnipeggers to picture, especially without the theaters there to tell those stories. Also, some just burned down or weren't safe. I don't think, like, the theater built of an old staple is going to be easy to make up to code. <laughs> no, probably not. A hundred years later. But, like, vaudeville still lives on, which is the fun thing about talking to Grant. So I did a much longer interview with Grant Sipson that we'll post on our website, where we talked about other big Canadian artists and his experience working up north in the Klondike doing vaudeville shows. But um, Grant also does vaudeville camps in Winnipeg for people of all ages. It's literally for children to people who are 99 years old because Howie Sims is in it. He's 99 (laughs) years old. It's worth it just to go hang out with Howie Sims. If you want to meet Howie Sims, you can join the vaudeville camp. (laughs) And uh, they're doing it online. There'll be links to all of Grant's stuff on our website as well, if you want to go check that out. It's totally worth your time. It's a fascinating industry, and it's really neat to hear about all the ways that people are trying to keep it alive. If you guys had to do a vaudeville act, what would it be? I want to tap dance. I'm not good at tap dancing, but I think tap dancing is so cool. It is cool. I try to do something that like either messed with the audience, like some sort of like kitschy magic act thing, or I would I would train my dog Samson to do something because there's nothing more fun than uh, teaching him to yep. do tricks, and he's a very good boy. So <laughs> he is a very good boy. dog shows are great. What would you do, Alex? Uh. You know, I've seen, have you ever seen those ones where someone like paints something really quick and then spins it upside down and it looks like a picture? I feel like I could pull off yeah. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Some art, some fun art-based trickery. Yeah. Yeah, so that has been our whole episode on vaudeville. There'll be pictures and videos on our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. You can follow us on social media at One Great History on Facebook and Instagram. We're on Twitter at the number one great history. Thanks for listening.